Nice to see all of you all. Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, glad to be with you, and uh, great to see your smiling faces here this morning. If you are just joining us in a, this, for the first time in this series, you are jumping into uh, what is almost the end of a seven-part series. This is part five of seven, so if you ever pick up a book and flip to two-thirds toward the end and try to read it from there, it's like, I think I missed something. Might, might feel that way as you get here this morning. Uh, we have been trying to essentially take this concept that for some of us, and for we know some people who are like this, maybe your story is like this, maybe it's not, I hope that it will never be, but for some people, they have a conception of God when they're very small, very young, and that conception of God stays small as they grow up, and they kind of outgrow their faith. And so this series is meant to drive home the point that we can have a childlike faith without having a childlike God, that we kind of need to keep growing up our view and perspective of God as different things engage us along the way, right? And so I've kind of likened this thing to walking into the woods. I don't know if that's the best analogy or not, but we've uh, at the very beginning said, here's the direction we're going. And then in the first uh, real, real week, we talked about some uh, views of God that sometimes are, are, are wrong or incomplete that we have of God. We're kind of clearing the brush. And then in week three, we walked into the clearing and said, this is who we think God is. And I tried to define God as love near and far. You can go back and listen to that if you want further explanation. Then last week I said, we're going to sit around the campfire for a minute while we're in this clearing and talk about some things that are difficult to talk about. The first one is this. If I'm going to define God as love near and far, how can I say that in a world where evil and suffering are here, exist? How can you say that and still deal with evil and suffering? Tried to answer that question last week. This week, we're still sitting around this kind of clearing, having another difficult question, and that is trying to answer this question. Can a supernatural God exist in a scientific world? Now, here's where this comes into play. If you, or you ever had a child, have ever started to ask questions about your faith that were fact-based questions, but you got faith-based answers. Try to say that three times fast. You got faith-based answers there is a growing frustration with that. Let me give you a, an example. If you have ever had someone ask you or you have ever wondered, why is it that it appears that the world is millions of years old, and yet, if I'm going to be a conservative evangelical Christian, I think I have to believe it's only three, 4,000 years old. What do I do with that? Hey, mom and dad, what do I do with that? School is telling me evolution is real. What do I do with that? And the answer comes... God can create a world that looks old. We trust God. To which you are getting a faith-based answer to a fact-based question, which may or may not satisfy you. And if you're a thinker, if you're someone who's engaging the scientific world, that isn't enough of an answer for you. Just not enough. It's a faith-based answer to a fact-based question. And over time, you begin to see, or you know people like this, begin to see Faith and science as adversaries rather than as working together. And it begins to be a divide. In fact, this is what happens in the broader scientific secular world. Some of you know the guy named Bill Nye, the... Isn't that wonderful that his name is just like that? Here's what Bill Nye has to say. If you know Bill Nye, you know he's rather antagonistic toward Christians in particular. Here's what Bill Nye has to say. He said, I say to the grown-ups, if you want to deny evolution and live in your world that's completely inconsistent with the world we observe, that's fine. But don't make your kids do it, because we need them. 
We need scientifically literate voters and taxpayers for the future. We need engineers that can build stuff and solve problems. If you want to live in your ignorance, that's fine. But come on, don't ruin the next generation. By ignoring the facts and living in your faith-based reality and creating people who are not thinkers and not engaged, don't do that. This is where Bill is coming from. Richard Dawkins wrote a profound book called The God Delusion. Many of you have heard of that book the bestseller type material. In there, he quotes a founding father of our very country, Thomas Jefferson. You may or may not like what Thomas Jefferson had to say, but here's what Thomas Jefferson had to say about the advance of science upon religion. Here's what Jefferson said. The priests of the different religious sects dread the advance of science as witches do the approach of daylight. Because his assumption was, If you are a priest of a religious sect, if you are a leader of a religious or faith movement, science is your enemy. And you are like a witch that is conjuring up ways to manipulate the world, and science will be the death of you. This is the world in which we live. So the question remains, can a supernatural God exist in a scientific world? Can a supernatural God exist within the scientific world that you find yourself in and that I find myself in and that our children will find themselves in in increasing measure? And giving faith-based answers to their fact-based questions will only lead to a further divide and further split. And we do not want that. Okay. So with that being said, let's charge in. I'll tell you this morning, I am not a scientist nor the son of a scientist. Or the grandson, I don't think, of a scientist, although I suppose it's possible. But um, I'm going to roll in and do my very best this morning to lay out for you what I hope will be a picture of our world, a picture of how I believe a creator has shaped us, but also engage in a very, I hope, objective and real way with our scientific world and give you something at the end that I hope will be very helpful for you. Okay. So with that being said, let me speak first to what is a a big assumption about science. It's a pretty big assumption, and it's so big that we don't even see it, kind of like the breath that we breathe. And here's the big assumption behind science, and I want to speak to this this morning. The big assumption behind science is this. At the end of science is an answer, if only given enough time and resources. The big assumption behind our scientific method is this. If we give enough money to and time to scientific advances, we will get resolution. Whatever the problem is, science will find an answer to it. Our big assumption is that the far reaches of science is resolution and an answer. Objectivity, facts. That's the assumption. And I want to challenge that this morning. I want to challenge that for a variety of reasons. One is history. You may or may not know this, but the way that we view even scientific realities such as light have changed over the centuries. Alistair McGrath, an Anglican um, theologian who's also a uh, scientist and very insightful guy, he wrote this about the changing views that we even have on light. Check this out. He said this, Isaac Newton's theory of light was widely regarded as the best available by scientists of the 18th century, but it was displaced by Fresnel's rival theory in the 19th before both were overtaken by the quantum theory of light developed in the early 20th century. 
Today's scientific theories may give way to something quite different in the future. So here's the deal. If you lived in the 18th century, Isaac Newton's theory of light was the answer of how light works. And then you get into the 19th century, and Fresnel all of a sudden is like, hey, well, you dummies in the 18th century, this is how it works in the 19th century. Like, oh, that makes much more sense. Sure, there's the answer, there's a resolution. Well, hey, you dummies, now we're in the 20th century, this is how it works. Here's the problem with that, and this chemist, Michael Polanyi, said this, chemist and notice philosopher of science pointed out natural scientists find themselves having to believe some things that they know will later be shown to be wrong, but not being sure which of their present beliefs will subsequently turn out to be erroneous. The scientific method is built on a variety of hypotheses, some quote-unquote facts which are provable and some which are not. And so our scientific assumption that given enough time and resources we will have an answer is an assumption that I would like to challenge. In fact, I think there's something very different going on. It was back in 1966 that Time magazine ran one of the most popular articles um, that has ever been put out by Time. And you may, if you live during this time, this cover may look familiar to you. It said this, is God dead? No picture behind it, just the font, bold face right on there, 1966, is God dead? What was behind this was this assumption that as science continues to advance, the need to have mystery religions, even God of the Bible, explain the mysteries of our world is no longer necessary. Why go to Hebrew poets to explain creation when we can go to scientists? Why do that? That doesn't make sense. So in this same year, in 1966, someone named Carl Sagan, who many of you may have heard about, an astronomer, he declared this. He said there are two conditions upon which we need these two conditions to be met for life to be sustained on a planet. Okay, he said, you need a star, a special kind of star in the galaxy, and then another planet in right proximity to that star, and then you will have life existing on that planet. Now again, because the assumption behind science is that at the end of it is an answer and resolution, we as a society move forward with great energy to say, wait a minute, if this is true, if this is true, then we should be able to find a lot of planets with life. And so the search for extraterrestrial, I say that right? Search for extraterrestrial information, that group, SETI, intelligence, search for extraterrestrial intelligence project began in 1966. They set up vast um, telescopic networks to try to basically ping radio signals throughout the entire galaxy. Eric Metaxas writes about this in one of his articles. And here's what they found out. As Sagan pointed out, he said there are roughly... Get this, these are numbers that go beyond my mind. There are roughly octillion planets in the universe. That's one with this many zeros behind it. 27 zeros behind it. There are roughly an octillion planets in the universe. And so if that's right, and there's two criteria for a planet to support life, then there should be approximately a septillion, one with 24 zeros behind it, planets that support life. That's a lot of planets that can support life. There's a lot of reasons why we should study and set up vast telescopic networks to figure out where are all these planets that support life. And so for about 30 years, millions of dollars was poured in from public and private funds in this project, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. In 1993, Congress finally defunded SETI. Why? Because they found this many planets that support life. Now here's why that matters. 
They didn't even find one. Listen, listen to this. This is so critical. As science advanced, they found not, 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 not as, it's not just two criteria to support life. We found more criteria to support life. There's, there's 10. There's actually 20. There's actually 50. There's actually 100. There's actually over now, as we, best we know, over 200 criteria necessary to support life. And so as those criteria advance, the likelihood of planets existing that support life diminish significantly. All the way down to the point where scientific probability says we shouldn't even be here. This isn't, this isn't me as a theologian speaking. This is now me speaking from scientific probability. The likelihood of planet Earth existing and supporting life, let alone the fact that I'm standing here reasoning with you as a human being, that's a whole other issue, but the very fact that life is supported at all, the likelihood of that happening is akin to me taking a coin and flipping it 10 quintillion times in a row and having it land heads every time. Science has shown us the probability of being here is zero. Which is why I would press the issue of the assumption behind science that at the far reaches of science is an answer. The answer is, nope, we shouldn't be here. That's what science will lead to. And so I'm going to say I don't think that is a correct assumption behind that. Listen, the universe, the universe is big. I know it's profound. Isn't that profound? The universe is big. I want you to see for a minute how big this universe is. The universe is so big, and, and with, with credit, by the way, outside me there's various people who have helped me shape these things, but I want to share them with you because I want you to see how big they are. We're going to go in a minute to the Scriptures, but I want to bring you here first. I want you to understand, when we read in Genesis 1 that in the beginning God created, God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in it. That's what we read in the Bible. It's, it's a Hebrew poem, right? This is a... This is, we believe, I believe Moses writing that. Was Moses a scientist who decided, I want to write down a scientific explanation to people as to how the world got here? That wasn't his intent as he's writing, but he writes this down. And what does that mean? What does it mean that in the beginning God created? God created everything, all right? So in the universe, let's just kind of frame this out. There's a hundred billion galaxies, we believe, each with a hundred billion suns, and each sun has a hundred billion stars, and our galaxy alone has a hundred billion black holes. Big numbers. The Andromeda galaxy, by the way, is moving at 200,000 miles an hour. Isn't that neat? Don't want to run into Andromeda on your way home this afternoon. Weird things happen in the deep recesses of the universe. If you could take um, a teaspoon with you and reach far into the deep recesses of our universe and find a neutron star, for example, a neutron star kind of runs out of energy over time, and it basically inverts on itself over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, kind of like taking a piece of paper and folding it half and half and half and half and half and half and half. Strange things happen through its mass, its density, its volume, and its weight. If you could take a teaspoon and kind of scoop out from a neutron star and just get a teaspoon of a neutron star, the mass of that on that teaspoon would be a billion tons. Weird. Things happen in the deep space. This is what happens with a neutron star. Our earth right now, we are traveling at 67,000 miles an hour right now, and we are spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. And we wonder why it's windy sometimes, right? It's amazing. We're traveling at 67,000 miles an hour, spinning at 1,000 miles an hour, and we receive, 
as a planet, we receive 99% of our energy from the sun. The sun, by the way, converts for us, get this, 4 million tons of energy every second. And over an 11-year sun cycle, that varies less than one-tenth of 1% over 11 years. If we were, were 93 million miles from the sun, if we were 92 million miles away, we would not be here. If we were 94 million miles away, we wouldn't be here. Is that just right? The earth sits on a 23 and a half degree axis. We're the only planet that does that. If that doesn't happen, we get what's called tidally locked. We would be stuck with one part of our planet facing the sun forever. It would be really hot. And the other part being super cold. Life would not be sustainable on the earth. 40% of our gravitational pull comes from the sun. 60% comes from the moon. That we have a moon in our solar system is a pretty significant deal. And we get oop, set like this and turned in just the right way to spin in just the right way, unlike other planets, so that we can maintain life here on earth. Hydrogen on planet earth must convert, get this, one seven thousandth of its mass to helium continually for sustaining life. One thousandth more or less, and we don't have life here on planet Earth. Our atmosphere is 21% oxygen. If it's 22% oxygen, we don't make it. If it's 20% oxygen, we don't make it. Our oceans are made up of about 3.5% salt. Again, 4% we're not here, 2% we're not here. This is what they call the science of fine-tuning. It's almost like a picture like this. This is our soundboard. Right, seriously, our soundboard right in the back. I took a picture of it and put it up here for you. Number one, if you would like to run the soundboard, let me know. Number two, imagine the universe being set like this, and there's about 200 dials that have to be set just right and just the right way and just the right measure. And here's the really significant thing. If just one of these dials is off, it's game over for the whole thing. It's not just, oh, well, it wouldn't be as nice to live here. It's like, no, we wouldn't be here. If our tilt isn't right, if our speed isn't right, if the salt isn't right. This is why at the end of science, an answer is mystery. This is why science will say, probability speaking, this planet shouldn't even be here. Let alone speaking about how big the universe is, how small the universe is. The universe is small. When you think about the microscopic reality in which we live in, you and I have brains, believe it or not. Our brains have several hundred billion brain cells in them. And check this out. If our brain were a computer, it would perform perform 38,000 trillion operations a second. The world's fastest supercomputer can function at 0.002% of our brain's capacity. Got that? It's amazing. We are, we are wired so that no brain cell of all the 100 billion are the same. In our bodies, our bodies are replacing our red blood cells at a mammoth rate. Every one to two seconds, you get two to ten million new red blood cells. From the time the sentence began till now, you have about 20 million new red blood cells in you. Isn't that amazing? And here's the thing. Every, red, every blood cell is wired in with DNA so that they're making more of you and not more of the person sitting next to you. That's really important, that you are continually made, not someone new. And if you were to take all those DNA strands and stretch them out, each DNA strand would be about six feet long. This is, this is mind-boggling. You take all the DNA strands in your body and you pull them out, and that would end up being about... Uh, 80 billion miles of DNA wrapped up in your body, which would take us from here to the sun about 400 times back and forth. It's wrapped up inside the cells in your body. 
Those cells are made up of smaller things. If you know this, if you're in science class, you know this. They're called atoms. Atoms. If you want to see an atom, you need to be a billionth of an inch tall. We have some short people around here, but no one that short. A billionth of an inch tall, if you want to see an atom. So somewhere along the line, they said, you know what, what if we could figure out, scientists were like, what if we could figure out what makes life? What is the basic building block of life? I know what we should do. We should get down to atoms, and these atoms are crazy. There are so many atoms in a like, drop of water that if the entire population of the world were to count all the atoms in a drop of water, one atom a second, it would take us all, counting consecutively, 20,000 years to count the atoms in a drop of water. They said, what if we split an atom? What if we cut one of these microscopic things in half? We got down to the protons, neutrons, electrons. You know, the um, electron that circles around the neutron several billion times a second. What if we could split that? I bet, and in 1890, J.J. Thompson led a group of scientists that said, you know what, if we could split an atom, we could probably figure out the basic building block of life. Because at the end of science is an answer. And if only we had the tools to split an atom, we could figure out what we're made from and what everything else is made from. And so they split an atom into what is now called a quark. And then they're like, ah, we can split a quark. And then they're like, we can split the thing that we split from the quark. Now we have known over 150 subatomic particles with no end in sight. This is the field of quantum physics. And so here's the assumption. At the end of science is an answer to life. And I want to suggest that the far reaches at the end of science is actually mystery, both at the big level and at the small level. At the end of science is mystery because, number one, we shouldn't even be here. Number two, this world was created, I believe, by a God who has allowed us even to begin to think about the scope of the scientific world the way that we do. Now, with all that as background, if you're still with me, number one, I applaud you for making it through my best version of Science 101 for the Christian. Number two, I'd like to turn with you in your Bible to the book of Job, because I think what happens here is very significant for us. There is a passage in the Scriptures, and it's in an Old Testament book of Job, in which Job engages with God, and God responds to him in such a way that I believe gives us great insight into thinking about this issue of how this world was made. The book of Job uh, is in about the middle of your Bible. You'll, if you turn to the middle, you'll see Psalms, and then Proverbs, and then the book of Job comes right after that. Um, and you will, you will see in Job chapter 38 a picture of how God is speaking to this man who has been uh, tormented by loss and grief. And Job has essentially questioned God's goodness and his faithfulness. And God responds to him in a way that is very profound, not only for Job, but also, I believe, for us. And we're going to read the entirety of chapter 38. I'm reading from the New International Version. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. 
And he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the cloud its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed the limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, and when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You've lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed? Or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become as hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Who endowed the earth with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clouds of earth stick together? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for a lack of food? And chapter 39 continues in the same vein asking the questions over and over and over again of the natural world in which we exist. Now, here's the thing. Maybe this is just Hebrew poetry. Maybe this is nothing more than the musings of some poet writing beautifully about the nature of some mystical God who cannot exist in the scientific world in which you and I exist. Maybe. Or maybe this is also a God who actually exists above and beyond time, who, when these words were written, was actually aware of the iPhone and the Internet 
and all the things that we have yet to discover that he already knows of, who, being above and beyond time, clarified to us our position in the world and asked the question, where were you when I created all the things that you are now finally discovering are required for life on planet Earth? Like, I know all these things already. I know the dials. I set them in place. I know that if one is off, the whole thing is game over. That's why I set it the way that I did. Like, where were you when I did this? See, if you want to say... If you want science to tell you there is no God, you can find that. You will find what you look for. But if you want science to show to you there actually is a mystery at the end rather than resolution, you will find that as well. That if you want to read the natural world in which we exist, following the scientific method, and have it proved to you that God doesn't exist... Number one, that can't be done. Science will acknowledge that. But number two, our world would say there's actually mystery at the end, not resolution. In Psalm 14, one, the psalmist says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. What if the world in which we live, the scientific world in which we live, actually wants there not to be a God rather than can prove that there isn't one? What if this is more of a heart issue than a mind issue? What if the world in which we live, the scientific world in which we live, cannot intellectually prove there is no God but doesn't want there in their heart to be a God? What if? And what if this is what the psalmist was talking about? What if this is God who has inspired this, who sits above time and above our experiences. What if? What if you'll find what you look for when you look in this world? There was a fellow named Fred Hoyle. You may not know his name, but you know what he coined. Some of you may know what he coined. He coined a term, Big Bang. You heard of that? Fred Hoyle coined the term Big Bang, and as he continued to understand how this world works, and the over 200 requirements for life on this planet, here is what Fred Hoyle had to say about the fact that, as he wrote, his atheism was deeply shaken. Here's what he had to say. He said, A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with the physics, as well as with chemistry and biology. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. What if, what if there actually is a creator God? If there is, here's the question, how do we interact with science? And here's what I'd like to suggest, we don't need to be enemies. Good grief. Why would we be in our faith world an enemy of science? Why should someone who holds to faith ever be afraid to ask really difficult scientific questions? Even questions that come from an evolutionary standpoint. Why would we be afraid of that? 
This is why I line up with what Galileo says. Galileo, a pretty smart guy and a believer, he said this, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. And we shouldn't punt on engaging the scientific world. And so as Christians, let me encourage you, engineer, pursue science, study, work hard, engage this world. And here's why I say that, because the question we started with is this, can a supernatural God exist in a scientific world? But let me suggest to you the real question, and that is this. Can a scientific world exist if there were no supernatural God? That's the question. That is the question. The supernatural God exists first that creates the world that shouldn't even be here, according to science. So here we are. Not only are we here, we're reasoning. And so why would we not want to encourage you, me, to engage in the exploration of what God has created? The fool says in his heart, there's no God. Because he doesn't want to believe that there might be. Because at the end of science isn't resolution, but is God. If you want to know how in the world would a God like that make himself known who can in a breath create all that is created with the nuances of the minutia? How can I get to know a God like that? Come back next week.